singing Law and Gospel on this Bible study Wednesday, July the 24th in the year of our Lord 2019. And being a Bible study, we're encouraging people to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, there's a verse there that is often quoted, and what we want to do is take a look at it in its context to get the full implications for your life as a Christian. I've often said there are two kinds of Bible studies. The one kind is a doctrinal study. Uh, For example, you can go through the Athanasian Creed, as we're doing right now in a Bible study I'm conducting, And all you're doing is explaining from a biblical point of view how the Trinity works together. Three persons, one God, Jesus, human and divine. You can give all these doctrinal statements. But the other kind of Bible study is where you'll use the doctrine but then move to application. And application is done by law and gospel. So if you're doing a doctrinal study, you get that through scripture interprets scripture. That's the particular item you use to understand what it's saying. But that's still not an application. Uh, For example, and I've said this many a time, you can use the wonderful passage about Jesus finding the lost sheep And understand how that occurs. Shepherd goes out, finds the sheep, puts it on his shoulders, carries it home. And you can explain it, that that's kind of unusual for a shepherd to do that. But that's no application. The application gets around that that's what Jesus did for you. And so today we want to take a look at Ephesians chapter 2 and concentrate not only on the doctrine, which we will, of course, mention, but more importantly on its application. And application is always law and gospel. And so we ought not be surprised. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, begins with law. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus where there are a number of Christians, but he's making the point that there was a time when you were dead in trespasses. What does that mean? Well, The walking dead are those who sin, are not repentant, have no faith in Jesus, and therefore they would be receiving the consequences of sin. In the day that you sin, death will be the result, which is eternal death. And just like Adam and Eve fell into sin by following the prince of the power of the air, And that's, of course, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then it goes on to verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So there's no distinction between human beings. All of us are born with what the Bible refers to as original sin, and we are in persistent rebellion against God. It's kind of like, you know, when I was a kid, oftentimes whatever my parents told me to do, I kind of rebelled against that. I've given this example before. My dad's going to be gone for a little while. He says, and while I'm gone, don't go in the basement. So he goes out the door. Where do I go? Well, why did he tell me not to go in the basement? And so what sin is, the devil gets you curious about why God does not want you to do that. Now, living a Christian life can really cause some problems. I believe on tomorrow's Rumination Thursday with Wes Reimnitz, we're going to be talking about a young man who is an actor but has a Christian point of view in regard to staying pure until marriage. And I understand he was fired from the job. This is the hatred that the sons of disobedience have against Christians. They don't want to hear what God has to say to them. They want to, as this says, follow their flesh. And we got to make a clear distinction. A lot of times the same word has different meanings in the Bible. Flesh can refer to your body, but it also can refer to your old Adam, your sinful self. And, I mean, how many times... You're kind of late for an appointment, and you're on a road, but there's no cars. The speed limit is 30, and you kind of move up to 40 or even 50 miles an hour in order to get there on time. That's your flesh making you do that which is disobedient against the will of God. So that's the law, that we were in big trouble We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, we're always looking for the but, B-U-T, and that begins in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy. Now, what does the word mercy mean? Now, see, here's a doctrinal part. Mercy, I like taking three things, just mercy, and grace. If God is just towards you, you're going to get what you deserve. We do not want a just God because we would be going to hell. We never get to the point where we deserve heaven. Mercy is that we do not get what we deserve. In other words, we're supposed to be going to hell because of our being dead in trespasses and sin, but God is merciful to us and does not give us what we deserve, which leads to grace. What's grace? Grace is God's attitude towards you where you receive that which you don't deserve, which is the forgiveness of sins. 
which is the robe of righteousness. This is a huge difference between every other religion in the world. They only have gods of justice. And I can prove it to you. Find me a religion outside of Christianity that doesn't tell you what you have to do to get right with God. That's a God of justice. Because if you don't do it, he's not going to reward you with salvation. In contrast to Christianity, yes, there are demands from God, but because of his love towards you, guess what? He meets those demands. And that's found in verse 4. After it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, there's a number of Greek words for the word love, but the one here that reminds us of John 3.16 is agape. For God so loved the world, and what follows? That he gave his only begotten son. I mean... That's really ridiculous from a human point of view. It would be like you go before the judge and you were caught robbing a bank. And normally it's five years in prison. And the judge looks at you and he says, well, I've talked to my son and he's willing to go to jail for those five years in your place. (laughs) Would that ever happen in this world? Of course not. But it happens in the spiritual world. Because God was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Notice, love is the foundation of his mercy. And it goes on explaining, and here we get into application, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. What does that mean? Well, we're talking here particularly about the cross. At the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. We were dead in trespasses, but we were made alive with Christ. Christ, as he rose from the dead, so also we received a new heart. Remember David? Creating me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. That occurred in the conversion process, and therefore we are made alive together with Christ. And then it goes on, by grace you have been saved. Now, Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. I think we understand that in baptism, go to Romans chapter 6, we also are dying with Christ on the cross and we are buried with him in baptism. Then just as Christ was risen from the dead, so also we are risen to new lives. We have a new spirit, a a new heart. But how about ascension? When are we going to participate in the ascension of Jesus Christ? 
I think most of us would say, well, that's going to happen on Judgment Day when our bodies are rejoined in the Spirit and we go to heaven to live eternally there. But listen to Ephesians 2, verse 6, after he says, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The Good News magazine, done by Wallace Schultz, uh, has a number of features to it, but one of them was talking about how different things are when you are in Christ, when Christ is with you. You see, how do we explain that you are already ascended into heaven, as this verse is saying? God uses extended metaphors. And the one that I like that really fits well here is the Holy Christian Church is the body of Christ. So you may be the hand, you may be the foot. We all have an important item that we share as members of the church. We have different gifts, but none of us are the head or is the head. The head is Christ. Now, you show me a living body with a head that doesn't have the body attached. Jesus, as the head of the church, he was ascended into heaven. And as it says, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, so we looked at the doctrine part. What is the application part? The application is Jesus, as the ascended Lord, becomes the one who is the heavenly priest, the heavenly prophet, and the heavenly king. What does he do as priest? Well, no longer is there a necessity for sacrifices. He was sacrificed once for all. There's no need for multiple sacrifices. So what does a priest do who's heavenly? He is the one through whom we pray. Now, do you understand what this means? You're not here on earth praying to Jesus who's way up in heaven, hoping your prayers will be heard. No, as part of the body of Christ, you also are in Christ in the heavenly places. So that when you pray to Jesus, who is Jesus with? He's with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. So that your prayers are instantly heard and they're instantly reckoned with. Ask, you shall receive. Seek, you shall find. Knock, it shall be opened to you. I don't think a lot of Christians realize that as Christians, being part of the body of Christ, they are always where the head is, the head being Jesus. And he has ascended into heaven, and that's why we have been raised up with him 
and seated with him in the heavenly places. Why? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace on kindness toward us, and here we go again, in Christ, in Christ Jesus. You see, this is why the promise of Romans 8.28 is absolutely correct. All things work together for our good. Now, at times we may not recognize that because we go through suffering, etc., but if you take a look at the apostles, all who suffered and all who appeared to be martyred except for John on the island of Patmos, guess what? They rejoiced in that suffering to share just a little bit in the sufferings of Jesus that were done for them. And therefore, we receive immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. Now, notice that all these riches or these benefits are by grace. And remember what grace is? Receiving that which we do not deserve. So we live by faith, trusting the promise of God that, guess what? No matter what is happening to us, God is taking care of us. He is being kind toward us. And then we get into this tremendous verse that you hear a lot about. Verse 8, Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through obedience? No. No Bible translation can put the word obedience there. It's always, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, the one thing about Christianity, in contrast to every other religion in the world outside of Christianity, is that God does everything for our salvation. So, if we are saved, it can never be on account of some good work we've done or a good attitude that we have. No, our salvation comes about through faith. Now, what does faith mean? Just to believe that there is a God? No, that's not saving faith. Saving faith is believing that Jesus died on the cross for me, rose from the dead for my justification, ascended into heaven to take me with him to answer my prayers. Saved through faith. Now, just in case some people think, and there are Christians who even say this, you can make a decision to have faith and invite Christ into your heart. You see, if that were true, then salvation wouldn't be because God does it. It would be because you contributed towards it. So Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Listen how he continues with, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift, the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
Now, all of us have some kind of occupation we've been going through, and perhaps we went to school to study for it, or we had some training, and maybe we went up into a superior possession in this occupation. You can boast about that because you were the one who took the training. You were the one who took the teaching. You studied hard. So you really contributed to your superior position at your workplace. But God's very clear here that when it comes to your superior situation in being saved, it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of any work that you have done so that no one may boast. Now, where the problem comes in here, and when I drive for Uber, this is often a question that people in the back seat say when I have explained Christianity. They say, oh, that means you can do anything you want and you don't have to worry about it because you're going to be forgiven. So I don't have to go to church because I know I'll be forgiven. I can do various sins because I know I'm going to be forgiven. They need to read the next verse. Verse 10. After receiving as a gift of God faith, it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The, the best way I can explain what God is saying here to apply it to you is think of a parent-child relationship. A parent brings a child into the world as an infant. The parent keeps dressing the child, feeding the child, giving it a bed, driving it to where it needs to go. As it gets older and older, that child does good works in the household. But these have all been in preparation on the part of the parents so that the, those good works would occur out of love for the parents. And one can say that these parents be prepare beforehand these good works that the child should walk in them. See, it's a very simple distinction that we make here in light of this passage. In every other religion in the world, works precede salvation. In other words, you are told to do certain works, and if you do them properly, you are saved. But in Christianity, works follow salvation. Because if you take a look at it, the works that God recognizes as proper works are not those that you do out of self-interest, whether it's feeding the poor, giving clothes to those who need it, uh, being nice to people at work. If that's all done out of self-interest, that is sin. But fruit of the Holy Spirit is a good work that is done out of love for Jesus. So we walk in good works, not in order to save ourselves, but because we've already been saved. It's a very simple distinction. In every other religion, 
good works go before salvation. In Christianity, they only can appear after you have been fully saved. This is why Ephesians 2 is such an important passage here. Paul makes it very clear that those who are not in the faith need to be in the faith in Christ Jesus so that by grace they're saved through faith, not by obedience, not by anything they can boast about. Because that's how God does it. Remember when he created Adam and Eve? Were they pure because they did good works? No. He created them pure, and therefore they did good works. It's the very opposite. And that's what happens when you are saved. God, first of all, saves you as a gift by grace, not by merit, not by works, because we do not have a just God in the sense who gives you what you deserve. Oh, that's scary. We have a merciful and gracious God who does not give you what you deserve and gives you what you do not deserve. So then we are able to walk in good works. As I indicated on tomorrow's Long Gospel with Wes Reimnitz, we may be taking a, a look at a, an actor who appears to be fired because of his Christian views. What has this got to say about where the world is these days? I'm Tom Baker. Till tomorrow, God bless. Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.